This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Dr. Dave Hone, mostly about Spinosaurus. We have Dinosaur of the Day, Gassosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons this week. That includes Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, and Rohan. Thank you guys so much, and thank you to all of our patrons. We really appreciate your support, and if you're interested in joining our community and getting a few behind-the-scenes updates on our Patreon feed and potentially ad-free episodes or some of the other rewards we have to offer, head over to patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping right into the news, we have another piece of Burmese amber in the news. Ooh. Yeah. This one actually came out in December, so it's a little bit old news, but we've had <laughs> holidays and lots of things backing up our news. It was published in Nature Communications by Enrique Peñalver and others. So this one was a tick that was found on a dinosaur feather, or really just closely adjacent to a dinosaur feather. And that's kind of redundant because I was thinking about it and I was like, how do they know it's a dinosaur feather? And then it's like, wait a second, dinosaurs are the only things that have ever had feathers. <laughs> oh, that's true. Because you could say like, well, was it a bird feather or was it a dinosaur feather? Because it's 99 million years old, but, you know, all birds are dinosaurs. So whether or not it had transitioned into a full bird or not doesn't really matter. Okay. It's a dinosaur well, feather. Okay, non-avian dinosaur maybe. Yeah. I mean, if it's in a tree because it got stuck in sap... It's probably at least, you know, avian-ish, because otherwise, why would it be in a tree? Fair. But something like Microraptor. Yeah. So this one's from Burma, also known as Myanmar. <laughs> and as such, it's from a piece of Burmese amber. Most of the amber that we talk about is from Burma. They have huge amber deposits. And they had previously found amber with ticks and little hairs, they called them, which were probably actually pieces of feathers left behind by beetle larvae that live in birds' nests in modern birds. And I think 80% of beetles that have ever existed still exist. So it could even be like basically the same beetles back then. But anyway, 
they weren't really sure if these had coexisted because that more indicates that a tick was around a beetle than that a tick was around a dinosaur or a bird. So with this, obviously it's a little bit better evidence. And they got the piece from a collector who donated the piece of amber to the American Museum of Natural History. And then after inspecting it, they decided that the tick was actually a new species and genus. They named it Dinocrotonidae, and dino obviously meaning terrible, and croton is tick. So really it's more like dinosaur tick. Hmm. <laughs> and then the species name Draculin comes from, quote, <laughs> the patronym for the main character of the gothic horror novel by Irish writer <laughs> Abraham Bram Stoker, which is a fictionalized account of Vlad III or Vlad Dracula circa 1429 to 1476. I get it because it sucked blood. <laughs> yeah. In other words, Dracula. <laughs> but they said it in the most scientific way possible just for fun, I guess. <laughs> So, yeah, it might mean that this is a tick that sucked a dinosaur blood, as the name implies. Although, as we've heard from a few paleontologists, it can be risky putting hypotheses like that into the name of a species because then it always seems to turn out wrong, like Oviraptor didn't actually steal eggs, <laughs> things like that. And one thing that the authors also point out in the paper is that the tick could have been preying on another animal in the nest, such as like a small mammal, for example. They like to get in nests. Well, then they got the name totally wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you're interested in magnified pictures of ticks, including one between <laughs> feathers on simulated dinosaur skin, this is the paper for you. <laughs> I found it Way pretty to gross. Put it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because who wouldn't be interested in magnified pictures of ticks? <laughs> you know, you're going to get the invertebrate paleontologists all upset. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty gross. And they have all these comparisons of like the fuzz on their legs to modern ticks. How you can tell it's a different species. Things you don't think of when you're interested in vertebrate paleontology. I would stay away. It's pretty gross. Or is it good fodder for a story of some blood-sucking animal? I was thinking that with Dinosaur 4, how he wrote about these huge ticks, and I was like, uh-oh, these are normal-sized ticks. <laughs> I think it's kind of shooting holes in his story a little bit, but it's okay. That was still a fun book. Mm -hmm. Next up is another feature about Ankyornis, and we've talked about how it's one of the first dinosaurs that was colored based on the melanosomes or melanosomes that were sort of preserved with the feathers probably depending on who you ask and that kind of showed this brownish red combined with black pattern of feathers on the dinosaur and now it looks like we might have a more accurate silhouette of Anchiornis too based on some further well-preserved dinosaur feathers. It was published in Paleontology by Evan Seta and others, and what they found was that there were really well-preserved contour feathers on this one fossil. If you're not familiar, contour feathers are feathers that aren't used for flight, basically anything else. And I think they call them contour feathers because it's kind of like the contour of the body of the bird. Mm -hmm. It's not the flying of the bird. So... 
the, the feathers that you find basically on the head, neck, back, and anywhere else that aren't wings or <laughs> necessary for flight. Usually, contour and flight feathers overlap in these fossils that we find, and that's because they kind of get smushed down, so there's this little edge of feathers that you can see kind of around the border of the fossil, but it's all these feathers kind of smashed together. So you just kind of get this little fuzz that you can see a little bit of, and it's really hard to distinguish individual feathers. Fortunately, they have one specimen that has a contour feather or two kind of shoved off to the side. It didn't get jumbled up in that typical border mass, <laughs> like a tuft got ripped out or something. I don't know. They describe them as having a shaggy and bifurcated shape. So that basically means like V-shaped and then within the V's and the individual sides of the V, it's like these little individual feather fluffs <laughs> <laughs> or Tufts. like little hairs kind of. Yeah. And they hypothesize that these contour feathers were used for thermoregulation and water repellents, but they did make the bird slash dinosaur a little bit less aerodynamic. They also found some flight feathers that were separated from the contour feathers, so they could get a little better view of those too. And they say that they were mostly symmetric, but they have slight curvature to them. And we've mentioned before that asymmetric feathers are basically what modern birds use to fly. So that's usually what they're looking for when they're looking for flight feathers. So the fact that they're symmetric isn't great, <laughs> but that slight curvature might have helped them fly, I guess. They also created a really cool piece of paleo art to go with a paper, and it looks a lot different than previous renditions of Anchiornis. It still has the sort of red tuft of hair on its head and the black and white flight feathers, but the rest of its body, which is most of it, is covered in this blue-gray fuzz, and it makes it look kind of muppety, hmm. <laughs> I think. I was looking at it trying to think what it looked like. I was like, is it sort of like a mammal because it's all fuzzy? And then I was like, no, it looks like a Muppet. It's really <laughs> the best way to describe it. I hope they make that Muppet. That <laughs> would be pretty cool. I think someone did make an Anchiornis plushie once, but it doesn't really look like this guy at all, <laughs> obviously. It would make a good puppet because it's got kind of a longish body. It's, it's hard to describe. Mm -hmm. It's a little cookie monster-ish. <laughs> <laughs> and there also might be a new Tyrannosauroid coming from Delaware in the U.S., according to Chase Brownstein and Pierre J. Basically, there were two partial metatarsals found. And metatarsals are foot bones, but on Tyrannosaurs, they look like the lower leg you know, you probably remember that the T-Rex footprint is really just the tiptoes, and then the rest of the foot is off the ground. So tyrannosaurs are really uncommon in Appalachia, which is the eastern half of North America during the Mesozoic. I was going to say, I don't remember the last time I heard about something coming from Delaware. Yeah, it's not super common. We talk about footprints from there a lot because they have all those Ubrantes and stuff like that. But... Yeah, not a ton of new stuff coming. I, that might be the other thing. A lot of the new discoveries come from either places that were kind of previously unexplored or where there's a ton of construction going on, like China, and Delaware doesn't really have either of those things. Plus, it's really close to a couple of the major paleontology research institutions, so it's probably pretty picked over. And from looking at it, it was already in the Yale Peabody Museum's collection, so I'm not exactly sure when they plucked these out, but I think it was at least a couple decades ago. 
In Appalachia, we already knew about a couple of tyrannosaurs. There's Dryptosaurus and Appalachiasaurus from Alabama, the recent dinosaur of the day. And the author compared it to those two, the metatarsals, but found some differences. So he thinks it's good enough to be probably a new genus or species. Although he didn't name a new genus or species, which I think is good because it's just two foot bones. It's not really great for future comparisons. It's like a holotype. It's from the Merchantville Formation, so he refers to it as the Merchantville specimen. (laughs) (laughs) And it was probably about the same size as Appalachiosaurus, about 7 meters, 23-ish feet long, although the only Appalachiosaurus we have is a juvenile, so it's a little hard to tell. And it's from the Campanian, which puts it somewhere in the ballpark at 80 million years ago. So if you're a big fan of Tyrannosaurs, as a lot of people are, Might have a third one, maybe. Need to find more bones, though. It's always the case. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know who just found a bunch of fossils, though? Who? Construction workers in China. (laughs) (laughs) Who'd have thunk it? (laughs) (laughs) It actually happened in late December, and they found 20 130-million-year-old dinosaur eggs in Jianxi province. And they were preparing to dig up a site of a school when they came across these. So these eggs have a two millimeter thick black shell and they've been moved to a museum so they can be studied. But it's pretty cool. Yeah. Whole clutch. At first I thought you said 2130 million year old. (laughs) (laughs) No. I was like, that's very old. 20 eggs. Yes. (laughs) That are 130 million years old. There we go. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good clutch. Yeah. The pictures are pretty cool to look at too. So there's a lot of really awesome exhibits and whatnots happening right now. Whatnots? I don't know if those <laughs> are all considered exhibits. That's why I say whatnots. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe they are. Well, the first one is uh, Japanese artist Hiroshi Fuji, who's made, they're calling Jurassic Plastic. Oh. Has a nice ring to it. And it's dinosaur sculptures made out of recycled and discarded toys. And the installation is in Sydney, Australia, from now until January 28th. And from Tuesdays to Sundays, between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m., there's one-hour makerspace workshop, so you can join with the artist. Cool. Yeah. If you insert Jurassic before anything, it instantly makes it a dinosaur event. (laughs) (laughs) Not dinosaur plastic, Jurassic plastic, but everyone knows what they're talking about. Yes. Well, sounds better, too. I suppose. Yeah. Or maybe we're just used to it. I, don't I bet know. there's a T-Rex in there too, though. I think that's like one of the main dinosaur sculptures. Yeah, of course it is. Wouldn't want to call it Cretaceous plastic. Maybe teach somebody something. Jurassic plastic <laughs> almost rhymes. I suppose. Good point. Mm-hmm. We talked about a few mobile museums last year. And last year, the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science had a mobile museum, a traveling exhibit in their mobile museum. And it was called Dinosaurs of New Mexico. And it was going around for about seven months, and they got over 17,000 people who saw it. That's pretty cool. And this year, they're keeping the mobile museum, but they're changing up the theme to show 24 Native American tribal communities of New Mexico, which also sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So it's no longer paleontology. It's swinching over to anthropology. I guess so. I think every year, if they keep it going, they'll probably have a different theme. Okay. wonder what they're going to do with the old exhibit. Maybe stick it in Tucumcari. Well, I think it came from the New Mexico Museum of Natural History, so it's just going back. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. That would be my guess, anyway. 
Over in Twin Falls, Idaho, the Faulkner Planetarium has a new show called Dinosaurs at Dusk, The Origins of Flight. And the show airs through at least February 1st, maybe longer, it was hard to tell. But in the show, you travel back to the Mesozoic with Lucy and her father, and you discover the origins of flight, and admission costs $6. Hmm. Sounds pretty fun. Yeah. I like planetarium shows. Yeah, that's really interesting to use a planetarium for dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You could use it to show an asteroid. Yeah, that would be the obvious use. <laughs> yeah, but I could see how it'd be fun to see things flying above you. Yeah, it's always like, it seems like it would be so distorted though, you know what I mean? On that rounded... Mm, maybe not. I guess if it's cool enough, you don't mind a little distortion. Well, I don't know that it would be distorted. You think about some giant screens like at Disneyland, the Soarin' Over California, that's not distorted. Yeah, that's different than a planetarium screen, though. I guess. But over in the UK, in London, Dinosaurs in the Wild is extending its stay there until July, even though it doesn't actually open in London until February 12th, but <laughs> it must already be so popular. <laughs> yeah. And we've talked about the show before. It's this immersive experience where you travel back in time to see dinosaurs. I think you get chased by dinosaurs. And in London, it's on the Greenwich Peninsula, and you can buy tickets online. Sounds like you might want to do that sooner rather than later. Maybe they'll extend it again before it opens. <laughs> I want them to come over to the States. <laughs> Back in the States, in South Carolina, from now until April 29th, Brook Green Gardens has an exhibit of 17 animatronic dinosaurs. And these dinosaurs are made of latex and spray-painted. And they include Ankylosaurus, Stegosaurus, Apatosaurus, Megalosaurus, Triceratops, Pachycephalosaurus, T-Rex, of course, Dilophosaurus, Utahraptor, and Dracorex. And if you're there, you can also, quote-unquote, excavate fossils. You know, the <laughs> sure kind where you, you kind of move some sand around. Sand around yeah. <laughs> but you can also take part in a dissection lab, which is where you can move organs and bones and take them apart and kind of see how it works. That's pretty mm. cool. The tickets cost $8 if you're an adult, $4 for kids. A little bit up north, the North Carolina Aquarium at Fort Fisher is getting its dinosaurs exhibit back this spring, and one of the dinosaurs in the exhibit will be a stegosaurus, and it'll be decorated based on the winner of their open art contest. So if you want to enter, you can download their coloring sheet, but just make sure you submit your drawing by January 24th, and the winner will be announced in March, and the exhibit will be open through September. In Creston, South Dakota, there's a ghost town that used to be a railroad town, and apparently in 1933, this blacksmith, Ike Murphy, built a 60-foot-long, 20-foot-tall dinosaur statue, sauropod, made out of scrap metal, wood, and concrete to try and attract visitors to the general store. So now it's known as the Crescent Dinosaur, and it, unfortunately, though, it's one of the only landmarks left. The sauropod, it's green, but a former resident said that they thought it used to be pink and that it had a different head, and also the, the tail has since fallen off. Apparently in 1998, a group of students helped restore the dinosaur, but it's in need of some more renovations again because the tail has fallen off again. Oops. Speaking of renovations, though, the dinosaur topiary sculptures on 3rd Street Promenade in Santa Monica will be getting refurbished earlier this year. I guess I haven't been to Santa Monica that much because I don't remember these dinosaur topiary sculptures. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever been to the Santa Monica Pier of... That's where, oh no, it's Third Street Promenade. Yeah. I don't know if I've been there. I 
I'm sure I have been there at least once, and I just I can't believe I don't remember. But hmm. apparently these dinosaurs have been around for 30 years, about 30 years. They first installed in 1989, and the weather, as you can imagine, has taken its toll on them, even though, yeah, L.A. doesn't have that much weather, but 30 years. Hmm. <laughs> So the project's going to cost about $400,000, and it'll include replastering and resurfacing, and they're expecting about four months to complete it. And the dinosaurs will keep their cast stone elements, but then they're going to have this more neutral gray palette instead of a red-brown color. Interesting. So they're topiary sculptures. Yeah, it's like uh, the head is the sculpture, and then the topiary part is the body, but it's, you know, shaped so oh, like the picture okay. they saw is a triceratops head and then the body is the plant. Gotcha. Yeah, because when I was like, well, why would they be like falling apart if they're topiaries? But oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not all topiaries. It's, it's all the surrounding parts, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On to media. A BBC Two aired The Real T-Rex with Chris Packham recently. And we mentioned The Real T-Rex before and how they recreated how T-Rex sounds. And in the show, Chris busts T-Rex myths and learns about the latest research. I'll post a link so you can watch, and it looks like you have until the end of the month to view it, at least through the link we found. We haven't seen it yet, but we need to. (laughs) We have until the end of the month. (laughs) Liz Climo, an artist on the show The Simpsons, has illustrated a children's dinosaur picture book about Christmas, and it's called Rory the Dinosaur Needs a Christmas Tree, and it's about Rory and his dad, who are both dinosaurs, trying to find the perfect tree. And I looked into it. Apparently, she's got a whole series of Rory the Dinosaur books. And so far, this one's got all five-star reviews. Hmm. It looks pretty cute. Nice. In Game World, the game Jurassic World Evolution by Frontier recently released another video of in-game footage. And it's all very Jurassic World-y, as you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) The dinosaurs are really shiny, epic-looking, and (laughs) really everything you would expect basically a lot like the movies (laughs) so the game will come out later this year if i remember incorrectly it comes out either right before or right after the movie there's another game coming out this year called gtfo and it's a four-player co-op game that's going to be set in the chicxulub crater Hmm. i couldn't find too much other info about it garrett i remember you were asking if it was on vr i couldn't find anything about that but i don't think it is is it about the crater or is it about like the impact itself There's not many details out about it Mm. yet. They just announced that it takes place there. At the Chicxulub Crater? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm guessing they mean like during the impact. That'd be the most exciting time to set a game there. Maybe. That's why I was thinking I hope it's in VR because it would be like pretty crazy to watch an impact happen in like virtual reality right next to it. Yeah, I don't know if you see the impact. It sounds like you're sent there. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) that's not as fun although probably a lot easier to make (laughs) probably well we'll keep an eye out maybe you'll you can tell us later yeah if you play it there's also a new android game called dino stack and it's a block stacking game and it's freemium you can buy currency and get boosts and new characters and whatnot the goal of the game though is to make your dinosaur tall by stacking blocks. Well, it's all tall dinosaurs. Like well, the main picture they show is looks like a giraffe or titan, mostly because it's colored like a giraffe. <laughs> and you just pile up different dinosaurs, or what? It's like you... Tetris, you know, you can pile oh. up, you stack them up. Except your stack makes the shape of a dinosaur. Interesting. Apparently, it's not that easy of a game. 
There's a 2D game called Saber and the Star Sheriffs that's most likely coming out this year. It was originally slated to come out late last year, but uh, they had some delays. So the dev team recently shared a screenshot of the game, which shows Dinosaur Planet. And the game was funded through Kickstarter. It's based on an animated TV series. I don't know too much about it, though, other than that there is a dinosaur planet. And I looked at the screenshot, and I couldn't really see any dinosaurs. So if you, maybe if you know more about the TV show... Wasn't enough to draw you in. <laughs> <laughs> I they didn't see dinosaurs right away, so yeah, <laughs> kind of like stacking blocks to be shaped vaguely like a dinosaur. Not enough dinosaur to be worth it. <laughs> clearly, I don't know. I could see myself getting into that game, but anyway. Oh, also, the game Magic: The Gathering: Rivals of Ixalan is introducing five legendary elder dinosaurs. And last I heard, they had announced two of them. One of them was a, looked like a pterosaur, but the other one is Galta, Primal Hunger, and she's green and can trample. And they're really pretty illustrations. If she can trample, does that make her like a quadrupedal dinosaur? No, no. She's carnivore theropod looking. Oh, okay. Like T-Rex-ish? Yes. And last, we've got a few quick stories about people in the T-Rex costumes because... Of course. <laughs> it's the slow news day favorite of your whatever your local channel is. I love hearing these stories, though. So in Combe Valley in the UK, a man named Adam Hay dressed up in a T-Rex costume and danced around for about an hour, which is pretty good. And he said he couldn't get his car out of the driveway because of snow, so he decided to take a walk in his costume. And people loved it, and they posted a bunch of positive comments on their community Facebook page. So he plans on doing it some more, and he also plans on wearing the costume while walking 150 miles for an Alzheimer's charity. That would be really annoying, wearing it for that long. (laughs) If you can wear it for an hour, that's a good start. I got tired of wearing it after about 10 minutes, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just saying, an hour and dancing, pretty good. Yeah, maybe it fits him better. Since we were at the extreme ends of the height, you know, requirements for the suit. Mm, (laughs) I have no idea how tall he is. (laughs) In New Hampshire, there's a teen who wore a T-Rex costume and went snowmobiling, which looked pretty fun. And last, a man in Philadelphia got a T-Rex costume as a Christmas present from his wife. So he decided to wear it while clearing snow around his house. (laughs) And it's a pretty fun video. I'm not sure that that costume would keep you warm enough, but... It makes the chore look more fun. Yeah, it doesn't really keep you warm. Because it blow the way it stays inflated is by blowing air from the outside in constantly mm-hmm. and creating like positive pressure. So unless he's wearing a big sweater underneath. Yeah, that's basically what you do. But you can't really tell from the video. I think it adds a little bit of warmth. It's it definitely acts as an effective windbreaker. So there's that. But it's with snow, out. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it also probably works to keep the snow off you. So there's that too. Yeah. Didn't check his feet. Didn't see what kind of shoes he was wearing. Probably boots. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. 
Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Dr. Dave Hone. This week, we're joined again by Dr. Dave Hone, who we spoke with about a year ago about tyrannosaurs. And as a reminder, he's a lecturer in zoology at Queen Mary University of London, and he has an excellent blog called Archosaur Musings, and he's a pretty prolific research paper author. And he just wrote a new paper, I say just, but it was actually a little while ago um, now about spinosaurs. And since so many people are interested in Spinosaurus, I thought it would be great to have a conversation about it. So first, I want to ask, a lot of papers have come out about T-Rex since we last spoke, especially about feathers and where yeah. feathers might have been and might not have been. What do you, how do you feel about these papers? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because obviously, collectively, I think the paleo field has been through a well, t- tyrannosaurs generally and T-Rex presumably had feathers. You know, we've got them in D-Long. We've got them now in U-Tyrannus. U-Tyrannus in particular is basically coated head to foot. Mm-hmm. Every major lineage where we know of has feathers. There seems to be no real evidence of major feather loss. Yeah, there are bald patches in, you know, ostriches and vultures. But, you know, they're basically fully feathered. And that's what we see in dromaeosaurs, truodontids, alvarosaurs, ornithomimosaurs. So the conclusion was not unreasonably T-Rex was feathered until further evidence came comes to light. Mm-hmm. And then, as with the best traditions of paleontology, further evidence came to light. And that is at least patches of skin in various tyrannosaurs, including supposedly T-Rex, well, supposedly is a little harsh on the on my <laughs> colleagues, but, you know, but that's one of the things that was included. And of course, when you have got a fragmentary skeleton, of course, the you know, it almost certainly is because T-Rex is one of those things where you, you can't easily mix it up because it's kind of isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, we now have these other things which have 
scales and apparently don't have feathers and therefore there's been this kind of immediate shift of well maybe they didn't but of course the truth is possibly not necessarily stranger but certainly more complicated than that so we know for example that feathers can potentially coexist alongside scales um we know that these scales are largely preserved in environments that don't preserve very fine detail. So it's possible that feathers were there and didn't show up. They're from isolated little patches on admittedly various parts of the body, but then from between like four different species. Mm-hmm. So it's hardly, you know, not to disparage the work in any way because it's really good, but it's hardly an overwhelming case for A, T-Rex didn't have feathers and B, T-Rex didn't have lots of feathers. It's a pretty convincing case that there are large patches of scales on various parts of some tyrannosaurs, which is certainly a shift from where we were even two or three years ago, where I'd have argued certainly that tyrannosaurs were probably very feathered like Euteranus. But I'm still personally very happy with the idea that Daspolidosaurus Gorgosaurus, Albertosaurus, Tarbosaurus, Tyrannosaurus still had a good amount of feathers in places. Um, And certainly these new specimens don't have patches that we can absolutely refer to major areas which we might expect there to be more feathers, like the arms, like the back of the head and along the top of the neck. And these are areas which in particular people have felt that feathers would probably be more likely found. Hmm. Certainly can't rule that out yet we're back to the classic old we need more evidence yeah <laughs> the paleontology favorite <laughs> well it's it's a funny one uh, because you know it gets used a lot and it's a bit of a cliche but i think with paleontology it does actually have a bit of a different meaning to most other fields because you know if you work on you know human immunology or you work on panda reproduction or whatever else <laughs> in in theory at least you can go out and get more data. You know, right, panda reproduction, we know it's really difficult to study pandas and, you know, they're really hard to get to breed. But if you come to an answer and you're like, you know, the data's kind of equivocal, we don't know. Mm -hmm. You can at least in theory pump a bit more money and pump a bit more time into it and get some more pandas breeding and try and get the data that you need. And with paleo, we can't do that. If the fossil doesn't exist... We don't have it. Like the data doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And you could say, okay, we well, can go out and collect it. Well, maybe, maybe the fossil doesn't exist. Maybe there is quite literally no T Rex fossil that preserves feathers, even though it had them. Yeah. So all the money in the world won't let me give you the answer to that question. And that's not true of pretty much any other field of science I can immediately think of. Maybe archaeology or you know, which has obviously a lot of comparable issues to it but you know it really is a very different thing it's it's not just we don't know we can't easily find out yeah true so the one piece that i found the most interesting was there were some patches that were kind of easily dismissed because there were basically the bottom side of the t-rex like yeah. near the feet and legs and then there was also a bit by the tail which some people had already known about so there were depictions of it with kind of a more scaly tail but then there was yeah. the one that you mentioned that was up by the neck and i couldn't mm. really figure out based on their description i don't think they knew where on the neck it was and that kind of makes a big difference yeah i i'm not sure they know quite where it goes 
and certainly what we have seen with some dinosaur mummies where there's lots of skin preserved and even those with very good preservation in various parts of the skeleton or, or with with skin and soft tissues is skin can kind of slip basically mm -hmm. once an animal's dead you know some of the interstitial and binding tissue starts to come apart and the whole animal comes a bit sloppy <laughs> so you can kind of rotate some fairly big areas around quite a bit and then add to that you know in the tens to hundreds of millions of years in the ground. Mm -hmm. And well, yeah, it, you know, people, I think some people kind of go, well, that's a bit dumb. Don't they even know what bit of the neck it's from? It's right next to the vertebrae, but you can't necessarily be that confident that just cause it's right next to it, that it actually associates with it. Mm -hmm. I've definitely worked on some pterosaurs in exceptional preservation conditions where the wing is just like separated the, the, as in the preserved wing membrane is just separated from the wing bones by like a few centimeters, which is quite a lot in a small pterosaur. Mm -hmm. They're right next to it. You know, they're right next to each other and they're both in the orientation and pattern they should be. They've just somehow come apart and one's moved a bit. Oh, that's weird. And therefore, of course, it looks ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you look at that and think, well, well, how far could it go without you even realizing? So, yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it's It's a big difference. There's a couple of patches where... It's, yeah, it's associated with some bones, but it doesn't necessarily go there. Or, yeah, there's a huge difference between, you know, the skin of the elbow and the skin of the crux of the arm and the skin of the side of the arm. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a couple of patches where, other than it was found with the tyrannosaur bones, the, the, you know, there's no clear indication of what part of the body it's even from. Yeah. So would there be, I keep wondering, since obviously the sediment in Hell Creek is a lot different than the sediment where Euteranus was found in China, mm. is there even a chance that we would find a big T-Rex, at least a large portion of a T-Rex in the kind of sediment where you would expect to see preserved feathers in Hell Creek? I don't know about Hell Creek itself, but certainly the fact that we've now got feathered ornithomimosaurs coming out of Alberta hmm. in environments that have Albertosaurus and Daspolidosaurus and Gorgosaurus hmm. is certainly an indication that these more traditional lacustrine type environments that we associate with actually not preserving feathers did. Hmm. Four or five years ago, could we even find feathers in dinosaur park the answer was no now we know the answer is actually yes yeah. but presumably they're extraordinarily rare otherwise we'd have found a lot more of them in the last you know 120 years of digging probably actually there were some and people didn't recognize them for what they were and probably prepared them away yeah um but certainly you know paleontologists have known about feathers in dinosaurs for a good you know 20 plus years now plus there's loads of bits which they're still preparing from much older collections there's older things which you know, weren't prepared very thoroughly or in great depth and could easily preserve feathers. So my strong suspicion is they still were really very rare. But yeah, it's a, it's not like we've been pulling them out of the ground left, right and center like Liao Ning. Okay, cool. Well, that's good to know at least because otherwise it's like you say, the fossil would likely just not even exist and you'd never mm. know the answer really. Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing, you know, as, as the, you know, these kind of papers you're talking about, you know, make make good use of, you know, they've, they've really kind of pulled the data together from multiple different specimens mm -hmm. and used a, an entirely reasonable inference of, well, you know, Daspolidosaurus and Tarbosaurus and Tyrannosaurus, they're all really close relatives. So though it's not ideal, this bit of arm and this bit of leg and this bit of neck and this bit of back probably all go together in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. 
yeah, they're, they're probably about right. But yes, what you'd really want, obviously, is one really good specimen that absolutely is diagnostically Tyrannosaurus and absolutely has good feather preservation uh, across, you know, feather or skin across large chunks of the skeleton. And yeah, I would not be holding out much hope of that. (laughs) At least not, you know, not in the next 20 to 30 years. Yeah. All right. So I, I want to give you some time to talk about Spinosaurus because you and Thomas Holtz put together this great paper. Was there anything that surprised you in kind of doing a review of the Spinosaurus literature and fossils? Yeah, a little. So, yeah, you, you tend to think of a review as kind of, you know, well, what it is, you know, summarizing large chunks of data. But you also think you won't necessarily learn anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you might relearn things. You know, you go back and reread a whole bunch of papers in depth and you have another look at some of the bones or another look at some of the drawings or photos or whatever. But you, you think that'll kind of be it. And certainly the, the two things that stuck out to me is I hadn't realized that Suchomimus, so this large baryonychine from Central Africa, Niger, I I think probably because of the original description, which is still the only description we have, is so short and contains very little information. But there's this lovely kind of skeletal reconstruction. And I'd always been under the impression that that was based on one really good specimen, rather like Baryonyx. And actually rereading the paper, it isn't. That reconstruction is based on several very incomplete skeletons. Hmm. So that was, oh, I thought Suchomimus was really well known, at least in terms of the material, even if it never got described thoroughly. Yeah, it really isn't at all. <laughs> so that, that was kind of a big surprise, and I, I don't think I'd ever known that. And the other one, which is rather less big news but i think in context is quite significant it it comes across as a bit of a throw a line in the paper and in hindsight i wish i'd made it a bigger deal of it so we say at one point that to our knowledge there is no known spinosaur for which we have a complete series of vertebrae from one part of the body so we have no complete neck we have no complete dorsal series we have no complete sacrum and we very unsurprising we have no complete tail Hmm. And when basically every spinosaur taxon is at least partly diagnosed by the shape and structure of its vertebrae, and when we know that they vary, uh, not necessarily quite a lot, but, you know, there's some weird things with ichthyovenita, that they kind of, there's these weird expansions at the end. We've got several spinosaurs which are only basically known from skull fragments. Yeah, that, that's a bit worrying uh, to a degree that we don't have a whole series anywhere. Yeah. Uh, Sigmiosaurus is known basically from most, but not a whole neck. Spinosaurus has loads and loads of odd individual vertebrae, but there's no series of dorsals. Baryonyx really is very complete, but it doesn't have a whole neck. It doesn't have a whole dorsal series, and it doesn't have a whole tail. So, yeah, there's some really, really big gaps. And you can point to other, you know, not very well preserved or not very well known groups which only have a few species in them but usually there's one which is in really good condition Mm -hmm. and you've got almost all of it and big chunks and as i say when actually a lot of our taxonomy for spinosaurs is based around basically the back or you know the vertebral series as a whole that's really quite a problem potentially yeah that is really surprising that didn't stand out to me in the paper yeah, I should, I should, as I say, I should, I should have, I should have made more of it. Well, at least our listeners will notice it now. 
Is that maybe part of the reason I'm always a little bit surprised by the different shapes of Spinosaurus sails? Is that because of the interpretation of how to scale the different individuals or something? Sometimes it has a dip in the middle, kind of like camel-y two yeah, bumps, and yeah, sometimes it's one yeah, big th- half circle. Right, yeah, I think people have yeah taken their lead from different things so you know a natural thing to do in the old days as it were was to look at you know dimetrodon um but also you know we've got things like aranosaurus out there so you do have another kind of sail-backed dinosaur but now you've got things like ichthyovenator which seem to go down and up a bit in places uh we've seen some odd if not spinosaurs but things like concavenator with an odd distribution of spines mm. Yeah, I, th- I think people are, to a degree, maybe catching on to the fact that we don't know this as well as we think we do. And actually, some more variation is, is really quite plausible. Cool. So aside from those things, my favorite part of the paper is when you start looking into some of the hypotheses about behavior. So tell me a little bit about what you figured out about how they ate or what you think they might have eaten like, I should say. Yeah. So, I mean, going back to even some of the earliest descriptions of spinosaurs, you know, people recognize that, you know, this is a dinosaur with a rather unusual dentition and a rather unusual skull shape. And then obviously in much more recent years, there's been very explicit comparisons with crocodiles and alligators and even gharials in terms of tooth shape, distribution, the shape of the skull. They have this weird secondary palate. They have this kind of notch in the jaw. So they have this, what's called the rosette. There's a little kind of expansion at the tip of the jaw mm-hmm. with the teeth sitting almost in like, you know, two thirds of a circle. <laughs> and mechanical analyses and various other things have shown, yeah, these are really very fish feeding like adaptations. But equally, people have already said before and we're not saying anything new um this doesn't rule out other prey whatsoever you know gharials will still take relatively large prey crocodiles and alligators will quite happily take really quite big animals the majority of their diet is often still fish i mean that's something that people miss in the other direction there's this kind of cliche of you know the big crocodile taking the wildebeest Mm -hmm. which you see you know every wildlife documentary and yeah big crocs do that all the time but actually, that's still like 10% of their diet. Oh. And like a good 70 to 80% are still fish. They're still fundamentally piscivorous animals. But yeah, the, 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 the other side of that is, you know, Spinosaurus can be primarily piscivorous. It can even be strongly adapted to being piscivorous. That totally doesn't rule out a significant percentage of its meals coming from, well, we know they ate pterosaurs because we've already got a pterosaur with a <laughs> bunch of Spinosaur teeth jammed into it. Um, but it doesn't rule out pterosaurs dinosaurs and who knows what else potentially on the ground or in the air so that 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 had long been established but what's caused a lot of problems or at least a lot of contention in the past is what the hands were used for mm-hmm. because among theropods and even even among megalosaurs so spinosaurs are we now understand part of a group called megalosauroids which include a whole bunch of relatively large armed and often to a degree large clawed animals Uh, But even among these, spinosaurs have big muscular arms, very unusual humerus shape, and big claws on the hands. And people have always tried to diagnose these as being some kind of feeding adaptation. Mm -hmm. And looking at these with, I think, a bit of a behaviorist mindset, which I'd like to think that I have, um, at least some of these hypotheses really have problems, obviously, associated with them. 
Uh, so one thing that's been suggested before is that they're used to kind of hook for fish. You know, they, they're, they're acting like big grizzly bears and basically they're sticking their hands in the water and, and stabbing or hooking or slashing fish with these huge arms. Well, for a start, they're under their body. They can't see them. They're fundamentally built differently to bears. Bears can see their paws when they're looking in the water. They can see what they're doing with their arms. Spinosaurs can't. <laughs> and that would appear to rule this out as a way of catching fish. It also appears to be redundant because they've already got this head, which we're pretty sure is really very well adapted to catching fish. Yeah. If you've got a whole suite of adaptations in one part of your body to do something – it's I cannot think of a single example in evolution where another part of the body then adapts to do the same thing, but in a fundamentally different way. Hmm. You know, forelegs and hind legs both adjust to make you faster, but it's not like you either run with your forelegs or your hind legs. <laughs> Why would Spinosaurus have this huge suite of fish catching adaptations in their head and then ditch it all to thrash around under their own chest and underwater with arms that they can't see trying to grab fish? It, it seems, you know, I hate to be disparaging of former paleontologists. It frankly seems silly. Uh, it's the only word I can realistically think of. There's no obvious extant analogue. It doesn't fit with what we know about how evolution works. And I cannot conceive of an animal trying to catch prey like that, <laughs> you know, under its body where it can't see. I've occasionally seen people suggesting that spinosaurs use their sail like uh, some of the night herons and birds that make shade yeah. and then catch the fish in the shade. People have suggested that with its spines. And it's like, how is it going to reach into its own shadow with either its arms or its head back behind it? Like, its neck cannot turn 180 degrees and then plunge into the water. And if that was going to work, surely all the spines would be up near the head as close as possible, not as high over the hips as they are uh, over the neck. You know, it's, it's just, you know, think about what you're saying. So, yeah, so we're, we're obviously quite disparaging of that. And then similarly, it's been suggested that the claws might be used to open up carcasses if they were scavenging. That, I think, is also pretty unlikely. Animals don't usually need carcasses to be opened up that way. Mm -hmm. It's true that vultures can't really feed on things like elephants until they start to decay or break up a bit. But even if Spinosaurs came across some giant sauropod with an ultra-thick skin, it's still got feet. You know, oh, yeah. at adult, this is a, you know, five-plus-ton carnivore with large clawed feet. If all it has to do is puncture the carcass enough to get the head inside, I'm pretty sure the feet will do the job without evolving a whole suite of adaptations in the arm. Hmm. So that doesn't really fit. And also the idea that they, you know, the, you need to get into the carcass to do something effective. Um, you know, the 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 bare and horrible truth of it is that. You know, scavengers usually find a way in. And if you look at photos of things like vultures and gulls feeding on things like wildebeest and seals, respectively, they go for the eyes, they go for the mouth, and they go for the genitals, and they go for the anus, because these are areas which are naturally soft. And once you've got an opening, you can work your way in. Oh, and however man. disgusting that is to us as humans, that's what these animals would do. And I fail to see why a spinosaur couldn't do that. I'm also fail to see why it couldn't kind of use its teeth frankly and even some of the toughest skin and just how often would an animal have to scavenge to have all these adaptations of the hand 
I think, again, is, is pretty unlikely. So the one thing we suggest, which we think is pretty novel, is that this might actually be a digging adaptation. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of traits you see in Spinosaur forelimbs, which we absolutely see in animals that dig. They have a very large and unusually shaped humerus, which would pack a lot of muscle. They have a very large electronon. So this is a process of the ulna. So these are the kind of forearm bones that extends behind the humerus. So this gives you a big lever. You see this in alvarosaurs, which we know are big digging dinosaurs. But you see it in armadillos. You see it in moles. You see it in anteaters and aardvarks and pangolins and things that dig or burrow. And then, of course, a large solid hand with particularly large solid fingers and a big claw on it. These are all adaptations that you see in all of these digging animals. So that's as far as our evidence goes, but we have good, clear analogs, and we have some major morphological correlates for this, and we're suggesting that maybe they were digging. We're not really sure what they might have been digging, but given what we know about some of these animals at least, they're living in environments which could be very dry, even though they're fundamentally living in water or hanging around water. That doesn't mean these don't dry up or there aren't water shortages. They might be digging for water. They might be digging to excavate nests, and it's perfectly possible they're trying to excavate prey, animals that live in burrows or under mud. Things like lungfish were around in large numbers at that time, Hmm. for example. So these are at least possibilities that we don't think anyone's explored before and are certainly worth looking at. Um, I certainly wouldn't claim any great certainty i think it's a good idea obviously otherwise i wouldn't have written it down you know i I think we i think we've got some decent support that it's worth a really serious examination of this as a hypothesis um and i think that's novel and obviously if we can find some good support for it or other groups do uh then we might start to understand quite what their forelimbs are doing yeah it's an interesting idea that they might be digging underwater because i can't think of really any other animals that do that i mean certainly not crocodiles well they, they, well, they could, of course, be digging on land. I mean, you know, part of the secret of the lungfish is when the river dries up, they make themselves their little burrow and, oh, you know, yeah. they're largely immune for months at a time from predators. In fact, you know, I know various African people really rely on lungfish at times of severe drought because actually they're not just a good source of food. They're a good source of water. Hmm. You know, it's a big, fleshy, wet animal, <laughs> which is storing up water in a way that nothing else is. And provided you can find the hole where it's living, yeah, the earth can bake pretty dry, but they're not too far down from the surface. And it's not too much effort to excavate one if you've got the right tools, Hmm. which I can't think of any obvious animal in Africa that can, other than things like aardvarks, which aren't going after lungfish. (laughs) But maybe the spinosaurs did. Maybe. Maybe. Interesting. And then, so I haven't seen a good explanation of what the sail might be used for i did enjoy the one about casting a shadow and trying to fish but what do you think the best explanation could be you know the obvious explanation to me is some form of socio-sexual signaling it's Mm -hmm. you know the equivalent of what we see in the frill in triceratops or you know the crests in hadrosaurs certainly i've commented in the past that theropods generally have relatively small crests you know the hornlets in tyrannosaurs you've got the equivalent in um ceratosaurs and allosaurs and even dilophosaurus and cryolophosaurus these you know these crests are not that big compared to all the big ornithischians Mm -hmm. basically as a prey problem as in 
any kind of predator needs to effectively hide from its prey to a certain degree. And if you give away the fact that you're a big predator by having a big brightly colored crest on your head, there's a count, you know, that might increase your sexual output, but it might decrease your ability to ever eat and therefore you die. Mm -hmm. So in basically you have selection operating in different ways. A bigger crest means you can you know, mate more successfully, but a smaller crest will help you get food more easily. Mm -hmm. Spinosaurs might potentially be alleviated from that pressure because if they're primarily hunting underwater with just the head, then, you know, prey is not going to see them coming because of the color or shape of their back. It will see them coming, presumably, because of the color and shape of their head, but that's not overly ornamented. Though Spinosaurus appears to have this little crest in the midline, and Baryonyx seems to have this weird, it's described as cruciform, so this little kind of nobble at the back of the head, behind and above the eyes, which kind of sticks up and out to the sides, like a little cross. Hmm. So those are at least two possible cranial ornaments that we see in Spinosaurus. But again, you know, suites of characters like this are common. I mean, you look at birds in particular, they have, you know, wattles, you know, you look at turkeys, they, you know, they have, you know, their wattles, but then they have the big wing feathers and the big tail feathers. Mm -hmm. You know, birds of paradise have bits all over them. It's certainly not uncommon for there to be multiple signals and multiple parts of the body. So my suspicion let's say for want of a better word is yeah that it's one of these classic sociosexual signals and that it's bigger than we see in other theropods at least in part because if they're primarily hunting effectively with the head in or underwater then the spine isn't gonna the, the spines or the, the back as a whole is not what's going to give them away to their prey therefore it doesn't matter if it gets big yeah i was wondering too with uh regards to the sail and it being really big and everything if Another animal, like a T-Rex or whatever, because it's always got to be a T-Rex, even though it wasn't really around. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some large carnivore, I guess it may be like a Charodontosaurid or something, bit a piece of its sail that's basically biting into a part of its vertebrae, right? Um, yeah, but at least at the top, there's not a huge amount there. Okay. Um, you know, it would be some bone and some skin and some connective tissue, but there wouldn't be huge blood vessels or nerves or blocks of muscle which would be you know I, I imagine it would hurt considerably but it's you know in no way it's going to be debilitating okay so it's not like it would be like devastating consequence no there's a whole bunch of hadrosaurs with bitten off and broken tips to neural spines because some of the hadrosaurs have really quite big neural spines they have a bit of a crest running down their back mm -hmm. and that doesn't seem to have done them any real harm at all okay so given that these things are, you know, three or four times that length, I doubt losing a chunk of that would be, you know, as obviously, you know, it's a big painful wound. It can potentially bleed a lot. It could potentially become infected, etc. Mm -hmm. But in the grand scheme of things, no, I don't think it's going to really slow them down. Yeah, that's better than getting bitten on your back. <laughs> well, yeah. Cool. So, you know, it would, it would be a brave carcarodontosaur which decided that what it really wanted to do was... <laughs> bite a full-size spinosaur yeah so that makes me wonder i never really knew that crocodiles eat so little terrestrial animals i always have that vision because of those documentaries of them just waiting in the shallows for zebra or wildebeest or whatever <laughs> that makes it really seem like the sail doesn't make a difference because if they're if they were waiting on the shore you know for something to come up the sail is going to give them away, but if they're just sitting with their face under the water waiting for fish, then it really doesn't make any difference. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we do see clear differences, you know, even among things like Nile crocs, you know, there are populations which are taking far more terrestrial animals and populations which are taking almost exclusively fish. But yeah, I don't see why it, it, it really rules that out. And certainly on average, even large crocodiles are eating far more fish and far less, you know, zebra and wildebeest <laughs> and antelope than I think people realize. Yeah. So does that mean, based on those kind of combinations of characteristics, that it wasn't really swimming around? Sometimes you see people depicting Spinosaurus as like practically a fish swimming all over the place and things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know. I'm not sure we know enough about the environment to say just how big or deep the water bodies were. So, for, and, and the other thing is as well, we, we, we talk about things like this, and of course we, we say Spinosaur, and yet usually we're kind of talking about Spinosaurus. Yeah. So, you know, Baryonyx, for example, is living in a very different environment and has, you know, the expanded spines to make the sail are a fraction of the size of, of Spinosaurus. <laughs> so it's already dangerous to generalize across Spinosaurus <laughs> and what that sail, the, the function might be the same, but quite how the selective pressures work out, quite what that means for prey. You know, we've got to be careful about what we say, these things. Good Spinosaurus point. is, yeah, absolutely the one which is depicted as being in particular very aquatic. I'm unconvinced that it is, you know, a basically a crocodile in all but name in, in terms of how people often depict it. So, you know, the recent paper that came out re-describing or describing this new material of this small Spinosaurus um, basically made an argument for relatively dense bones in these animals, and therefore, arguably, they are somewhat better at sinking. They have the dense bones that we see in hippos and penguins and diving birds and, and things like this. That's quite interesting and certainly quite compelling for an animal spending a lot of time in water. But the idea that it was really swimming and diving, I'm not convinced of. For a start, we don't actually see real retraction of the nostrils, and that's a pretty key one. Mm. So, you know, things like hippos, obviously all of the whales, crocodiles, various other animals that, you know, terrapins that spend large amounts of time in the water, the nostrils are in some way either right at the tip of the nose or kind of raised up above the general height of the skull mm -hmm. so that the animal can be underwater and still breathe. Spinosaurs aren't really like that. They, they get described sometimes as having these elevated nostrils but they're not, they're retracted. They're not at the tip of the snout. They're quite a long way back. And that is unusual already. But they're a long way back from the front. They're not high up. Hmm. And to me, that suggests an animal with the tip of its nose underwater pointing down, not an animal that is underwater trying to lift its nose up and out. Hmm. So, yeah, they really don't have retracted nostrils at all. And that is an adaptation that we see in so many species that spend a lot of time in water, and particularly underwater. I find it very hard to believe that this was a real aquatic, fully swimming around underwater animal in the way that it's, it's, it's sometimes shown. Yeah. Uh, and even animals which are often called, you know, semi-aquatic, not just crocodiles and hippos, but, you know, things like tapir, things like capybara – Again, they have a similar capability. And these are animals that don't spend, you know, capybara don't spend that much time in water. It's not like it's 90% of their time or even, you know, tapirs don't spend that much time. And yet they have this ability. So, yeah, I, 
I don't find them doing that. But that's not to say they weren't spending a lot of time in water. You know, an, an animal like a stork or Spinosaurus, which is, you know, thigh deep or chest deep in water for most of the day, is spending a hell of a lot of time in water. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge difference between, you know, a stork and a duck, uh, you know, or a stork and a penguin. You know, these are both birds spending huge amounts of time in water, but they're doing it in very different ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've, I've seen people argue that they look so well adapted for aquatic lifestyle. And I always ask, compared to what? Because the other yeah. things that you think of swimming around are all streamlined and they have, yeah. you know, big tails and whatnot. <laughs> right. But the sail doesn't fit. They don't have a big deep square tail. They don't have obvious paddles. The arms would actually seem to get in the way because they don't appear to be able to fold them into the body. You know, none of these things look like streamlining, you know, because water is so dense. Mm -hmm. You know, in water is, you know, anyone who's tried even running through knee-deep water knows just how hard it is. You're trying to move your whole body. You know, you need these adaptations, and none of them are clearly present. Yeah. But but the flip side of that, which people, because then people get caught up in things like that that doesn't mean it couldn't move around underwater i'm not saying it didn't dive i'm not saying it didn't swim lots of things dive and swim that you'd think would be terrible <laughs> swim better than most people would realize <laughs> and can even dive a little bit and yet no one's claiming that you know uh, elephants are hydrodynamic <laughs> um, so you know i'm perfectly happy with the idea that spinosaurs did that but that's very different to they are well adapted to that and they did that all the time, yeah. which is how that's often interpreted. Yeah, not a primary mode of operation. Right. Cool. So we've mentioned a few different spinosauroids or spinosaurs. Yeah. What, how many genera are we up to now? Um, I think it's about eight. Okay. Although there was a revision paper that came out like three days ago. <laughs> oh, really? Which I've, which I've skimmed but, but haven't dug through properly uh, though largely i think it was it was confirming the separation of two things which had been suggested to be congeneric so yeah spinosaurs have there's been a bit of a rash of them in the last two or three years and you know as with any dinosaur group you know there is no dinosaur group Im immune from taxonomic revision and indeed it shouldn't be mm -hmm. but it's fair to say that spinosaurs have way more problems than almost anything else you know given that we're talking about like eight or so genera there are so many problems. We've got animals known only from jaw tips. We've got animals known only from vertebrae. Um, we've got animals known from bits of both that, that don't quite line up. Hmm. Um, so this paper that just came out the other day was looking at two things from South America called uh, Irritator and Antagurama. And one's basically the front of a skull and one's the back of a skull. <laughs> and not only had people suggested that these were the same genus, several people had suggested they were the same actual individual specimen <laughs> that had got broken in half and described as two new taxa. This latest paper suggests that actually they don't quite overlap, or more accurately, they do. Both of them have the third tooth in the jaw. Oh. And if that's the case, they cannot be the same individual. Yeah. can't have a third tooth twice. So that's actually comforting that they at least look, they appear to be separate specimens. But again, one is described from the third tooth back and one is described from the third tooth forward. <laughs> Given that they're from similar formations, that's not a great basis to start establishing two different 
genera. Yeah. Um, then again, you've got this thing called Oxalia from Brazil. So these all three of these are Brazilian. That's only known from basically the front end of a set of jaws. Spinosaurus itself, you've got one or two species, depending on who you speak to. Mm-hmm. Then you've got this genus Sigmiasosaurus, which may or may not be that Spinosaurus or the other Spinosaurus, depending on who you speak to. There was this massive revision or attempted revision of Spinosaurus a couple of years ago based on some new material. Not everyone is convinced that that new material really is Spinosaurus. So we've got a horrible mess. We've got a bunch of specimens dug up in the 1920s and 30s, most of which are now lost because of Allied bombing. We've then got a bunch of stuff which has basically come through the black market. So we really don't know quite where it's from white whether or not we've got one specimen or two when someone sells you a box of bones that they say they got from this place we don't quite know how they line up with each other and we don't know quite how they line up with the stuff that's come out of thailand or the stuff that's come out of brazil and then we've got things like there's some teeth from tendaguru the famous locality in tanzania that gave us well brachiosaurus which is now giraffe titan mm-hmm. And so many other great dinosaurs from from that part of the world. And there are some teeth described as a thing called Ostafricosaurus. And they're just a bunch of teeth. And, yeah, they're probably Spinosaur teeth. But is that really good enough to designate a new genus reliably? No. There's a a question (laughs) over that. Well, it may be. It might not. Um, But, yeah, so you you have these huge amounts of non-overlapping bits specimens of not dodgy provenance but basically unknown provenance a whole bunch of taxonomic revisions with people arguing different ways off of different things which is quite normal but not normally to this degree mm-hmm. and all tied up with the fact that we just can't easily compare things to each other um and then some of it's just not described you know Suchomimus was like the third good spinosaur ever and it was described in 1998 in a paper in Science, which is like three pages long. <laughs> That's all the information of Suchomimus, which has ever hit the scientific literature. How on earth are we supposed to compare that to Baryonyx or Spinosaurus or anything else effectively? <laughs> uh, so we're, we're kind of hamstrung. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird that they find all these little tiny tips of jaws, too. Right, yeah. So this is something we we comment on in the paper, Tom and I. You know that you, it's remarkable how many spinosaurs are known from anterior jaw fragments, mm-hmm. and maybe they break off easily. Maybe they're particularly dense, so they tend to preserve. But I can't think of another theropod group yeah. where like two thirds of the taxa are known from the front third of the skull <laughs> and, and like almost nothing else. That's genuinely bizarre. I mean, even baryonics, you know, so we've got the one famous really good baryonic skeleton with most of a skull, most of a skeleton, two new ones have turned up. They're on display in the Isle of Wight museum in the UK and they're both jaw anterior upper jaw fragments. Even baryonics isn't apparently immune from this. And the teeth, actually, we just, we just talked about the teeth and diagnosing Ostafricosaurus. The teeth are wildly variable. So I, I wrote a paper on, an, very, on basically a single tooth uh, that I found in a museum in China and realized that it was probably a very late and at that point unusually Asian spinosaur, a baryonychine, in fact. Mm-hmm. 
you know, even in the paper, we said a putative baryonychine tooth, as in we're not 100% convinced. It seems to have been well accepted by spinosaur researchers that we've got that right, because you can confuse spinosaur teeth with croc teeth and some other theropods in certain circumstances. Um, but the literature on spinosaur teeth will tell you that they can be ornamented or unornamented, so they, they have these kind of ridges on them, and they can be recurved or very straight and very circular in cross-section or very flat, and have uh, lots of serrations or not many serrations or no serrations. <laughs> and in pretty much any combination between those things, and it's still a spinosaur tooth. That's now, that's possible. Um, you do see some things with very high degrees of variation because if selection simply isn't acting on them, maybe all of these tooth types are quite efficient. Maybe there's subtle variations in what adapts well for feeding on more fish versus feeding on more land animals, etc., etc. Um, but it's clearly a problem that you know we would like to try and work out their taxonomy better. And there are huge numbers of isolated spinosaur teeth in parts of Europe, for example, and now they're starting to turn up more in Asia, which is then, of course, is interesting. Yeah, there's been a few in Japan, too, which surprised yeah, me. <laughs> right. And, and yet we've got no real clear diagnosis of what they look like. And again, in part because people aren't going back to the original specimens because the original Spinosaurus is gone. Hmm. Sukumima still hasn't been described properly. Uh, no one, I think, has really looked at the teeth of Antagorama and Irritator. Oxalia is brand new, so no one's looked at it. Fair enough. And so you're back to, well, we kind of know what the baryonics teeth look like. Yeah. And it's this is not what we should be diagnosing multiple different clades of teeth based on. You know, we need teeth which we know are attached to real specimens, that we know what those specimens are. And then we can start saying, okay, baryonychines tend to have thinner, more serrated, unornamented teeth, and spinosaurines tend to have bigger wider ornamented unserrated teeth hmm. that's what i think people will tell you but we really don't know if that's true or not <laughs> great <laughs> yeah pretty much well on that note is there anything else that you'd like to share about things that you're working on possibly spinosaur teeth <laughs> uh I've, i'm not currently working on spinosaur teeth though I may, if I ever really feel the need to put a huge amount of effort into something that I'm not that interested in. I mean, part, part of the other problem actually is just how well dispersed they are. I mean, so to, to yeah. drag this out, we've got them in Brazil, we've got them in Europe, we might have them in Africa, and they're now cropping up in Eastern Asia. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when there's not still not that many specimens, it means you're kind of forced to go to all, you know, to these select set of museums to see not very much material. Hmm. And these kinds of work that you'd want to do to sort out things like the teeth means that really you want to go and see everything. And that's a huge amount of time and research money to basically go and look at a whole bunch of teeth. Yeah. And maybe not come to a very clear answer. You know, if you want to go and, you know, if you want to work out what's happening with juvenile tyrannosaurs versus adult tyrannosaurs or early tyrannosaurs versus late tyrannosaurs, you know, you can go to two, three museums in North America or maybe one in China and see 95% of what you need. And therefore, at that point, you've pretty much got everything. You know, no one, no one's going to give you too hard a time in your paper for not visiting some obscure collection in, you know, in Japan or in brazil but with the spinosaurs you, you're gonna have to go to thailand you're gonna have to go to china you're gonna have to go to the uk and probably portugal and france and uh the ostafricosaurus stuff is in berlin 
And then there's a couple of different collections in Brazil. You know, you're talking about thousands bordering on tens of thousands at this point to see like six, seven specimens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, actually answering your question, uh, what am I doing at the moment? Um, I've got a few things on the go. So I've had a paper that's just largely been accepted looking at yet more bite marks. So I do a lot of stuff on bite marks, but this is quite nice. It's a really young Diplodocus from the Morrison Formation, in fact, from Dinosaur National Monument in Utah, which has got a whole ton of Allosaur slash Ceratosaur bite marks on it which show some really interesting feeding patterns hmm. uh, which is nice and i'm trying to finish a long boiling and never quite got round to quite doing description or redescription of ashdarkid pterosaur material at the royal terrell museum oh, cool. so this stuff which for years has been kind of quetzalcoatlus or cf quetzalcoatlus or you know, as darkied in debt mm-hmm. and actually sorting out what we think it is. Cool. And then you've, of course, got your blog, Archosaur Musings, which is excellent. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's still ongoing. I mean, it's reduced from what it used to be. I mean, there was a point during my postdoc in China where I was publishing maybe four times a week or even five times a week. Wow. And now it's more like one every two or three weeks. And it's a combination of factors. I don't have the free time that I used to. I do have other venues. So, you know, the book obviously took up a lot of my science education time. And I write for The Guardian now, and I have a blog there as well. Hmm. And I'm doing more physical outreach. I mean, the the time of my peak blogging was while I was in China, where I wasn't really in a position to go out and go into local schools or anything like that. Now I'm back in the UK, and I speak the language of the country that I'm in. I can actually do more direct outreach with things like going into schools and we have various things like skeptics in the pub, science in the pub, pub science. You can see a British theme appearing Mm -hmm. here, but I can do more stuff like that and big venues like the Cheltenham Science Festival, which previously weren't available to me. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining. That was a really fun conversation. It's really cool to hear kind of a summary we get a lot of the there's a new dinosaur there's a new dinosaur there's a new dinosaur and when someone goes back and actually looks through all the evidence and tries to make sure it all makes sense those are my favorite papers personally because you can actually get a lot more information about the dinosaurs so i appreciate your work and thank you for coming and talking about it no worries thanks for having me on thanks for the interview dave it's always great to talk to you and i love talking about spinosaurus too It is a good topic. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. 
the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Gasosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube, so thanks. It was a Tetanuran dinosaur that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Dashampu, China, and its name means gas lizard. <laughs> it's named in honor of the gasoline company that found the Dashampu fossil quarry in Sichuan province, now known as the Lower Shashimiao Formation, and it was found in 1985 during the construction of a gas facility. Which makes sense. It was named by Dong Jiming and Tang Zilu, and the type species is Gasosaurus constructus. You can imagine what the species name means. <laughs> <laughs> not many fossils have been found, so it's not clear exactly what it looked like, and no skull has been found. Some scientists think that Gasosaurus and Kaijiangosaurus may be synonyms. It had short arms and strong legs. It was about 11 to 13 feet or 3.5 to 4 meters long, and it weighed around 330 pounds or 150 kilograms, though some scientists estimate that it weighed as much as 880 pounds or 400 kilograms. It was thought to be a megalosaur, but now it's thought to be a synraptorid, based on data from undescribed specimens. Gasosaurus, what's interesting about it is it's the subject of a myth, so on February 20th, 2014, a website published an article that claimed a 200-million-year-old dinosaur egg had hatched in a Berlin museum due to a malfunctioning heating unit. They said that the egg was in a storage room next to the boiler room, and the system overheated and started the incubation process. So, uh, as you can imagine, it turns out this article was a spoof, published by World News Daily Report, a site known for publishing fictitious stories, including... Other ones that they've published are Giant House Cat, now available on market, and Apple announces release of Paranormal Communication Application. This is according to Snopes. <laughs> yeah, I remember when that article came out, and I was like, no one can possibly believe this. If they can believe that uh, Steven Spielberg killed an endangered species Triceratops. I guess so. But at least that had a good picture to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> And our fun fact of the day is that sauropods produced about five to ten times the methane that all ruminants, also known as cows mostly, do today. <laughs> that would be so smelly. Uh, maybe. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if that's the main smell. Could be. <laughs> but anyway, they might have even produced as much methane as all of modern natural and human sources combined. Oof. And this likely, obviously, contributed significantly to global warming at the time, and concentrations could have reached as high as 8 parts per million. Today, the average is more like 2 parts per million, so quite a bit higher. <laughs> but it's not just because sauropods were like some sort of crazy methane-producing machine, <laughs> although they could eat low, medium, and high foliage, so they could probably bring in a lot more vegetation. And like we've talked about before, since they didn't have to chew, they could consume a lot more in a day than something like a cow could. Mm -hmm. But a bigger factor might be that there was a lot more foliage at the time due partly to the higher carbon dioxide content, which helps plants grow, and the fact that there was no ice in the way and just generally forests and plants covering more of the earth. So there was a lot more mass available for <laughs> these plant heaters to chew on and turn into methane. Do you think that could have been a defense mechanism? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't turn off a predator? No. 
They don't care. <laughs> They'll eat you anyway. I mean, I guess if they had like skunk level of bad smell, you know, that could work. Mm -hmm. But it's got to be pretty, pretty bad. Mm. And I don't even know. I wonder if skunks ever get eaten. Like animals that are just like, I don't care. I'm going to eat you anyway. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Sauropods were really massive methane producers. And on that lovely note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And you can also join our growing community. Make it part of your 2018. Check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.